0: you are listening to the Songs of Jesus sermon series at Sojourn Church Midtown. This series explores the power of singing the stories of Jesus. We'll see how these songs are rooted in the promises of God, speak to our deepest longings, and equip us to bring all we are to Him. Peace be with you. Today's scripture reading is Isaiah 9, 1-7. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along in your bulletin or on the screen behind me. Hear the word of the Lord. Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan, and to Galilee of the nations. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing spoils. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did in the day of Midian. For every trampling boot of battle and the bloodied garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Well... Welcome back the week after uh, Thanksgiving or a few days after Thanksgiving. It's good to see you all as we uh, kick off our Advent season, a season where we reflect upon the coming of our Lord, the incarnation of our Savior. And so we're going to be starting today a a new series uh, that will uh, last throughout the month of December um, as we uh, prepare our hearts for Christmas. And uh, the title of the series is Songs of Jesus. Songs of Jesus. And what we're going to be looking at uh, through the book is, uh, or through this series, is some common songs, some common carols that we sing uh, often, um, as well as looking at the book of Isaiah. And we'll be looking at some themes throughout the book of Isaiah, uh, some prophecies that uh, foretold the coming of the Messiah. Originally, carols were songs of celebration. They were uh, songs meant for dancing, Uh, choirs sung church music, and people sung carols. These kinds of songs were not inherently about Christmas or even about Jesus for that matter. Rather, carols were songs of the people, songs of celebration, songs of hope, Around the time of the Reformation, uh, carols were uh, sung by people and, and often accompanied drinking and eating and dancing, and it was especially to some, some popular music. Uh, but the Reformers hoped to reclaim the best songs of their day and to repurpose them for the church. And around that time, we started seeing Christmas caroling become popular where they took uh, songs and put uh, Christian lyrics to them. And they would go around singing these songs and hoping that it would would catch on. And these songs were songs about the the Messiah, uh, songs that were incredibly rich, songs that had depth of lyrics that would teach the story of Jesus. And today we're going to start our series by looking at uh, one of the most famous songs that we just sung, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And not only is it one of the most famous songs, but it's also one of the oldest songs. The song was uh, written and dates back to the 8th century. It was a chant that was uh, originally chanted by, by monks. It, in the 12th century, was rearranged into the verses that we just sung. And in the 1800s, it was translated to, to English um, and to the music that we're used to. So the song that we just sung is about 1,200 years old. It's one of my favorite songs for Christmas. Um, it's a song that I had on repeat yesterday. It's a song that I enjoy uh, singing forth today. The song is sung in a minor key, and when it's paired with a lyrics, it's lyrics, it's kind of a dark, moody, mournful feel, and then suddenly the refrain uh, bursts forth um, light as we sing this, the words rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel. And so I just want to put up a a slide real quick that's going to kind of give you a picture of the songs that are to come. This week we'll be looking at this song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, along with the theme of longing. And we'll root it in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1 through 7. And then in upcoming weeks, we'll sing some, some more songs that we're used to, just before the sermon and just after the sermon, and we'll deal with some Advent uh, themes as well. But all this will be rooted in the, the book of Isaiah, this book of prophecy, this book of hope. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll dive in into this first theme. Uh, Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for this, this season. Well, we get to reflect on the incarnation of our Savior. We get to reflect on the fact that God became flesh and and dwelt among us. We get to reflect upon your name, Emmanuel. And we get to long for your return. I pray that you would take me, uh, uh, your servant, a broken and and weak man, and allow me the grace to proclaim uh, the the riches of your gospel. To these, your people, decorated dust, those whom you have called out of darkness into the marvelous light. Enlarge our hearts for you, O Lord. In Christ's name, amen. Well, this year I got into the Christmas uh, season a a bit earlier than I normally do. I'm normally the person who kind of turns his nose up at people who listen to Christmas music before Thanksgiving, right? I'm the guy that's driving around the neighborhood that sees lights up before Thanksgiving. I'm thinking, what is wrong with them? They are doing too much right now, all right? But this year it hit me for some reason. It's two weeks before Thanksgiving, and for the first time in my life, I'm listening to Christmas music. My wife came down one morning. She said, is that Christmas music? I'm like, yeah, I don't know what's happened, right? It just... <laughs> Is uh, just something hit me. I don't know a, a Christmas fairy or something. Just sprinkle something on me in the night. I don't believe in Christmas fairies or fairies. All right, uh, but something just hit me, and 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 the the the, the Christmas spirit came. Now a uh, part of what hit me may have just been marketing right <laughs> it seems like every year uh, marketers are uh, 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 starting a week earlier than the year before to uh, start marketing Christmas and to get us into the Christmas season that's that's what I believe I believe that they're starting every year a week earlier uh, a decade from now we're going to start putting up Christmas stuff on July 5th right <laughs> uh, right after uh, the 4th of July is going to be Christmas season I, I can just feel it coming But part of the the Christmas uh, season, part of what um, makes it so magical and and enchanting is is that um, it does, it taps into a part of our soul that just longs. It it, it, it taps into the way that God has hotwired us um, to just live with anticipation or expectation, to look forward to, to look ahead. And for some of us, the longings are, are, are beautiful, and it, it brings up nostalgia, and it makes us happy. And for others of us, it does. It taps into a, a deeper longing. It, it taps into a, maybe even a darker longing, a longing for a connection, a, a, a longing to be over a grief, or a longing to be reunited with a, a loved one. But this season, this time of year, perhaps more than any other time of year throughout our country, And throughout many places in the earth, it it causes us to to live with anticipation and to live with longing. But I'm going to be honest with you, longing in in, in Christian circles and even in our Christian circle is, is something that is weird for some of us. For some of us, we've been taught most of our life to bury our longings. We've been taught that desire in and of itself is a bad thing. And that to desire, to long, to, to anticipate um, is, is something that, uh, that's a sign of immaturity. And some of us are emotional and, and, and spiritual growth is stunted because we have an unhealthy view of desire. We have an unhealthy view of longing. When we feel emotions, when we feel longings, when we feel desires, we're like, nope, bury it, stuff it away. Don't deal with it. It's immaturity. It's weakness. And I hope today and, and through the sermon and through this series that you'll see that that longings and desire is not inherently evil or bad. That God built it in to us. All the way back in the, in the book of Genesis with the fall of mankind in Genesis chapter 3, uh, God gives his, his people he gives human beings something to desire, something to long for, and that's redemption. In Genesis chapter 3, 15, we see the proto-evangelical, right? This, this pre-gospel message that is, is preached to the serpent and it's proclaimed that a child would be born that would crush the head of a serpent and he himself healed would, would only be bruised. All the way in Genesis chapter 3, in the midst of Adam and Eve, shame, guilt, and brokenness and weakness, God gives them something to long for, and that's redemption. Redemption. God created us to long, and I don't think he's called us to simply bury or to ignore longings. But he also hasn't called us to be enslaved by our longings. And for some of us, we're at the opposite extreme, where we allow our longings Not to be indicators, but to be dictators. For some of us, what we long, what we desire, ends up becoming our God. And James warns us of this when he says, Each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire, by his own longings. And a good desire can become an evil desire. We'll talk about that a little later when it becomes our ultimate desire. For others of us, we, uh, for all of us, God wants us to acknowledge our longings, embrace our longings in a way that honors and glorifies Christ. That gets deeper to the root of that longing and that allows us to, to take those longings and to, to pour them into, into our, our Lord. And to allow him to shape them towards our good and his glory. In Isaiah chapter 9, we see that the people of God had an opportunity as well to take their longings or a longing that was good and to to use that longing in a way that honored God. And so the context of this great uh, story that we have in Isaiah, this great passage, this great prophecy of this, this coming Messiah King is that uh, Judah, um, their king, Ahaz, is in quite the predicament. Assyria is on uh, the, 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 the move, is, is growing as a nation in power and in might. And many of the other nations around Judah are coming together and they're making a pact together um, in order to have protection against uh, the Assyrian uh, king. And so the king of Judah, and you can read more about this in 2 Kings chapter 16, is faced with a dilemma. Does he look to these other nations and make a pact with them, or does he trust the Lord and believe that the Lord will protect them from Assyria and from the Assyrian reign? And so the prophet Isaiah comes to uh, Ahaz and says, do not cut a covenant with the other nations and do not cut a covenant with Assyria. The Lord your God will protect you. And in fact, in Isaiah chapter 7 and chapter 8, Isaiah essentially says, and you'll know this because God is going to give you a a sign. And the sign is going to be the birth of a child. And it's a a miraculous birth, a, a noticeable birth, right? And so what Ahaz chooses to do is not to trust the Lord. He has a longing for security. He has a longing for peace. He has a longing for restoration. He has a longing for fame. And rather than trust the Lord for protection and for security, for peace, he makes a pact with the king of Assyria. And as a result, long story short, the Assyrian king comes in, takes over Judah, and they go into captivity and into bondage. In this Advent, we have the same opportunity every single day. The same opportunity is set before us to either trust in the Lord for our deepest longings, or to trust in human ingenuity and to trust in ourselves. Every morning when we wake up, we have an opportunity. Am I going to rely on the Lord who saved me, who redeemed me, who calls me his own? Or am I going to operate out of unhealth? Am I going to go after false idols and false gods and false security for temporary relief? In this passage, Isaiah comes uh, to uh, judah and to israel and gives us th- gives them hope in the midst of their longings for freedom in the midst of their longings for security he he, he pins this prophetic word that is given for the lord to them and look at this prophetic word and and we're going to break this up into two categories about the messiah the first is the first is what the messiah will bring and the second is the messiah's being because in the midst of our longings in the midst of terror, in the midst of fear, in the midst of unfulfillment, our answer is the same answer that God put before Ahaz. It's a child. It's a child. He's given us a sign. In verse 1, it says, nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the lamb of Zebulun and the land of Naphtalia But in the future, he will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan, and to Galilee of the nations. Now, this may sound familiar to you. If this sounds familiar to you and you're a member of Sojourn, the reason it sounds familiar is because we read this in Matthew chapter 4. As Matthew is recounting the life of Jesus Christ, And as he's writing to the churches, um, he, he pulls this whole section out and he places it right in Matthew 4, just before Jesus' famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And he uses this passage to show how Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophecy. And what's significant about this passage is, is that Isaiah is, is writing this and he is acknowledging the fact that uh, this portion of Galilee, which is in the northern uh, part of Israel, which is east of Jordan, is a part that was particularly dark and particularly broken. And part of the reason it was, partic- it was bro- dark and broken is because it was often invaded by Israel's enemies. It was a, a place in which if Israel was going to be attacked, those who were attacking would come this way. It was a place that was often uh, burned with fire. It was a place where women and children were taken advantage of. It it was a place that was poor and poverty-stricken, that was often um, in in siege by other nations. And so this was a place of hopelessness. This was a place of darkness. This was a a place of of the half-nots. This was a place that... That was constantly trampled on because of battle. In fact, Isaiah is going to use that language later on where he's going to say the trampling boot of battle and the bloody garments of war. This was a place of brokenness. And yet this is the place where the Messiah, where Jesus is going to first uh, shine forth as the bright light. This is a place where the kingdom of God is going to first be preached. Jesus came, according to Matthew's gospel, in Matthew chapter four, preaching that the kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe. Jesus, the Bible says, went up this shore, and he did miraculous things. He gave sight to the blind. He he, he healed those with uh, uh, who were paralytics. He opened deaf ears. When he came and started his ministry, he didn't start in the places that were the most wealthiest or the most known. He went to the outcast and to the broken. In fact, those who were on the mountain when Jesus gave this prolific message and he pronounced blessings on them. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It was these people of Naphtalia and And Zebulun, that was present. So in the midst of darkness, Isaiah is saying there is hope. God wants to create in you a a holy longing that life will not always be this way. And what this longing and what this hope is meant to do is for the people of God, even in the midst of their oppression, even in the midst of their brokenness, to be able to rejoice on credit, knowing that they are not forgotten by God and that God will deliver them. Rejoicing is the way that the author is is calling these people to respond. Look at verse three. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing spoils. God's people, all of God's people, one day will rejoice. One day we will meet this Messiah and have all of our deepest longings fulfilled. He will increase our joy. And I love these two images. He says, as of the time of harvest and as of a time with dividing spools. Uh, this week, just before I took, uh, had my Thanksgiving meal about an hour before, I just got really excited. I walked into the kitchen and I saw all of my favorites. We spent the holidays with my uh, wife's family and she has uh, uh, five sisters and uh, all of them can throw down. Not all of them was present, but all of them can throw down. And the first wave of food I saw, and I was like, this is amazing, got full. And then the second wave came out. I'm like, oh, no, y'all didn't. Y'all got two waves, right? And I just got so excited. I mean, I, it was just like harvest time. I'm like, Lord, help me to have self-control, right? Uh, but, but you know that feeling of when it's a time to feast. Some of you had that experience this week. Uh, just before it was time to eat. Not 10 minutes before, 10 minutes before you get cranky. Like, is the last part of the meal ready, right? <laughs> Getting upset. Who are we waiting on, right? <laughs> um, and, and, and so this is this picture of just of feast, of harvest time, of wealth, of prosperity, of, of deep joy, of dividing spoils, of victory. And Isaiah also points to a day that would have been really important in Israel's history, the, the day of Midian. You guys may remember the story of of Gibeon in Judges chapter 6 through 8. I just want you to do me a favor if you're a believer. Go home and read the story. I read the story again last night and just was overwhelmed with so many beautiful themes. It's so powerful and poetic. It's a story about how God saves Israel from the Midianites who were oppressing them for many years because they were disobedient. They were being oppressed. They were slaves. It was a dark situation, just like it's a dark situation here for Judah. And God raised up a man named Midian, uh, named Gibeon. And Gibeon was from like the worst tribe, the tribe of Manasseh. It was a small tribe that's often seen as a weak tribe. And not only that, uh, to his own, uh, uh, in his own words, he was also from a, a family that can be described as the, uh, as the least of all of Israel. And it's a story about how God comes to this unlikely likely guy, says, I'm going to deliver my people through you. Gibeon gets an army together of 22,000 people. God says, Gibeon, I, I feel you. I love your heart and how you're ready to go to war, but it's too many of you. And God shrunk his army down from 22,000 to 300. To 300 men. And the Bible says that the, uh, 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 that, that Gideon and his boys, that they went into, to, into battle with 300 men and they ended up not having to fight because God caused so much confusion amongst the Midianites that they fought themselves. And Gideon uh, and the Israelites were able to walk away with all the spoils. And Isaiah is painting a picture for Judah And he's giving them hope in the midst of their darkness. And he's saying, it's not always going to be like this. One day there will be rejoicing as of the day of Midian where God delivered his people in an unlikely way. And it's important for us to remember this, even in the midst of our longing, that God will deliver his people and that God delivers his people often in unlikely ways. And so the passage now is going to get even more specific as he's going to share how he's going to deliver his people. And he's going to share how he's going to deliver his people by pointing us to a Messiah. The Messiah will bring rejoicing. The Messiah will bring light. And we know that this ultimately is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We see in John chapter one, it says in him was life and that life was the light of man. The light shines in darkness and yet the darkness did not overcome it. John applies this light imagery to Jesus Christ all throughout the New Testament. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He is the light that's going to come to Zebulun and Nephilim and give hope. But now John's going to show the very being of the Messiah, the very person. And it's absolutely poetic and beautiful. We pick up in verse 6, for a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. Now, let's just look at, at how the Messiah is described. It's first described as a child. Have you ever just stopped to ponder the, 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 the creativity of God? And the sense of humor of God, the salvation would come and that God will come as a man. and Not as just as a man, as a little boy, as an infant, as a child. And this points back to the foolish ways in which God has determined to save. And it also points us back to Genesis chapter 3, 15. This promise that through the womb of a a woman, a, a child will be born that will crush the serpent's head points us back to uh, Genesis chapter 12 and this hope that God gave Abram that through a seed, the, the whole world would be blessed. God chose to come through a child. and It's not just any child. It's a, it's a human, one of human descent, but it's a son. And it points to the narrative of scripture that, that the Messiah will become through the, the royal descent of David through the tribe of Judah. And not only is is this child a son, but this child will bear the entire government on his shoulders. Everything will revolve around him. His shoulders will bear the responsibility of leadership, but his shoulders will also bear the oppression of his people. His shoulders will also bear the the weight of his people. And we know that Christ bared the weight of his people and the oppression of his people by by dying on the cross. In Matthew chapter 1 verse 21 when Mary is given this prophecy it talks about how she will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus. The Lord says for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the king and he was born as a child with the purpose of dying. He came like he came to do what he did. He did what he did so that we might be who we are. He came like he came, virgin born and as a baby to do what he did, live a sinless and perfect life. He did what he did, live the sinless and perfect life. And died on the cross for us so that we might be who we are, children of God. And Jesus reigns and he rules in his kingdom. And those who become a part of his kingdom are those who trust him to bear their oppressive yoke of their sin. And just the oppressive, oppressive yoke that they are living under. And they take his yoke and his burden which is easy and light. But the child will also be called a wonderful counselor, a, literally a, a wonder of a counselor. And this term is, is used over 80 times in the Old Testament. And the majority of the times that it's used is referring to, to Yahweh. It's referring to, to his works. It's referring to the fact that, that there's this supernatural counsel that, that is, is given, this, this supernatural aid, this supernatural help. And we know that Jesus in the New Testament is, is, is seen as a wonderful counselor. I mean, think about all the times over and over in the New Testament that Jesus is found giving counsel that just blows the minds of those who he is counseling. And he had the ability to counsel all types of people. He had the ability to counsel people like Nicodemus who was self-righteous and stuck. And in that counseling, he was able to break up their hardness and to and to preach truth and to give hope. He was full of truth and grace. But he also had the ability to counsel people like the woman who was at the well, who was hopeless and misguided and possibly even ostracized by her own people because of her, her lifestyle. Jesus was a wonder of a counselor, such a wonderful wonder of a counselor that that it was a common refrain in the Gospels used to say that that after people heard him speak, after they heard him preach, they would conclude that he, he spoke as a man of authority, not like the scribes and the Pharisees. He spoke as one who was the author of the people that he spoke to. But then it says this term that I love, that he was a mighty God. (laughs) While many Jewish people had names and in their names had had words that referred to God, like Isaiah's uh, name itself. Uh, This name or this title that is given here is special as it seems to be a close connection to this ruler and God. Jesus' ministry baffled the disciples to oftentimes at the the end of the story, we will see that they would ask the question, who is this? Who is this that, that demons are exercised and come out at his word? Who is this that, that those who have leprosy, uh, their skin is, is healed and clears up? Who is this that can, can speak to the sea and say, peace be still, and like a, a well-trained dog, it obeys its, its master's voice? And this is the wonder of this passage in Isaiah that we see 700 years before Christ that Isaiah is pinning a picture of the Messiah that shows him as a human, as as a natural being, and yet as a divine being. One who will suffer, Isaiah 52 and 53, who will be chastised, who will be beat to the point that he's not recognized. And yet one who will not see death. (laughs) An eternal father, he says. Now, we as Christians, we are Trinitarian. We believe that there is one God. That God is three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that each person is fully God. And we know that Jesus is not the Father. He is his own person. He is not the Holy Spirit. He's a distinct person, but they share the same nature. But yet it says of the coming Messiah that he will be referred to as the eternal Father. And what is this pointing to? This is pointing to the fatherly nature of Jesus. This is pointing to the fact that his ministry would have wisdom beyond his years. It was Jesus at 12 years old that was in the temple And as he's in the temple, suddenly he becomes the teacher in the temple and amazes people. It points to the fact that that this Messiah will father those whom he he leads. He fathered the disciples. He often spoke to those who were subjects of his his reign and rule as as daughter. Remember, he raises a little girl from the dead, telephakuma, little girl arise. He often refers to to grown men. To grown men as sons. And he's the prince of peace. He will rule. And his kingdom for all eternity will be free of scandal. Free from injustice. Free from pride. The incarnation... These pictures of the coming Messiah, what he will bring and his being, it is meant to help, to satisfy, and to shape our longings. It's meant to give us security in the midst of our longings to remember that God is with us. That God has not forsaken his people. That we as the people of God can have hope is meant to aid us in gritty discipleship, to help us in the midst of a world that is dark and broken, to help us in the the midst of of, of a fallen world, in the midst of of us being, being sinners, even as Christians, knowing that the old man has not moved out, but he's just moved over, to continue to pursue the path of discipleship, to continue to pick up our cross, to continue in the midst of our sufferings to rejoice. Because we know what our Messiah brings, that he is going to bring rejoicing. And we also know his being, that he is a counselor, that he is able to give peace and that he will bring justice. Advent gives us courage to be honest. It gives us the courage to be honest about our longings and to turn from warped longings to Christ. The Advent reminds us that it is okay to be weak. The Advent reminds us that it is okay to acknowledge that we are our sinners and to, and to own it, and to repent and to turn from it, because there is grace in God the Father. And because we belong to him. Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes that the celebration of Advent is possibly only to those who are troubled in soul, who know themselves to be poor and imperfect, and who look forward to something greater to come. Are you coming into the season of Advent, this Christmas season, with the courage to acknowledge your brokenness and your weakness before the Lord? Second, Advent also invites us to delight in Christ and to allow him to shape our longings. In James chapter 4, the book of James is a great book about desire. In chapter 1, it, it gives us a picture of how our desires lead us into sin. It's not God who tempts us, but it's our warped desires that, that, that is sinful and that leads us to sin. But then in chapter 4, James just goes buck wild. James says, look, why, why are there fights and quarrels among you? It's one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Like, why y'all beefing? Why is it so hard for y'all to get along? He's talking to Christians, church folk, right? Over Thanksgiving, why was there tension with your family? Why was this, this uncomfortability, this uncomfortableness? Uncomfortability is not a word, but why was this amongst you? And he says this, it's because you desire and you do not have. So you murder. Why do we murder? Why do we get angry? Why do we lash out at people? It's because there is a desire that we have and and that desire becomes God. That desire becomes ultimate. Awesome. It could be a good desire. It could be a, a desire to be loved by someone who should love us. It could be a a desire to to have a better provision or or whatever. It could be a good desire, but good desires become bad desires when when they become ultimate. Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. You take Christ out, you put anything other than that at any given moment. And we say, for me to live is this, fill in the blank, that becomes an idol. Why are there fights? Why are there quarrels among you? Is it not this you desire and you do not have, so you murder. And then he goes on, and he encourages the church. He says, you would have, you would have your deepest longings. Uh, you will find contentment if you would just pray. He said, but the problem is when you pray, you pray with selfish intention. And then James goes on and he says that this is adultery. And he encourages the church to turn to Christ, to draw near to the Lord. He says, for the Lord gives more grace. Advent is a time for us to to come to Jesus and to say, Jesus, like Ahaz, I have fear. Like Ahaz, I have desires. I want security. I want peace. And to be real, to, uh, to acknowledge those desires. But to, to say, "Lord, help me to not focus on these desires, rather help me to delight in you. to see that, that the answer to fulfillment is not you giving me exactly what I want. The answer to fulfillment is not is not a better job. The answer to fulfillment is not a change of circumstances. It's, it's not a different spouse or a spouse who sees things my way or your way. It's not a spouse. It's not better friends. It's not more money. It's not a safer uh, living predicament. It's not better behaved children. The answer to our soul's deepest longings is found in the Lord. And we find that contentment and we grow in contentment when we learn to delight in him. What if Ahaz, in the midst of his fear, had just taken a deep breath, talked to the prophet Isaiah, received his counsel, looked for the signs that he was given, longed for the day when the Messiah would come and say, I'm going to persevere even if it means that we are taken over for Assyria. Better to be taken over by the Assyrians and to be in right standings with the Lord than to be in the wrong standings with the Lord and have freedom because the Assyrians is protected. What would have happened if he would have just meditated on the words and the promise of Isaiah? I'll tell you what would have happened. God would have, God would have counseled him. God would have gave him a peace that passeth all understanding. Isaiah 60, 26 and 3 gives us a promise that as believers we have. This is a promise, y'all. This is a promise You will keep the mind that is dependent on you in perfect peace, for it is trusting in you. This is God's promise to you. When we set our affections on Christ, he will give us perfect peace. It may not come immediately but keep travailing keep persevering keep meditating on the word keep reaching out to god begging god sometimes it feels like god gives it uh we have this trouble this anxiety we give it to god and god gives it back to us and we're playing hot potato with them. but keep keep doing it because he promises that that there will come a moment where his light will shine through and all of a sudden there will be a peace that, you, that the bible says that surpasses all understanding where you like, I. You know what? I don't even, you're right. I was tripping yesterday. I don't know what happened. I just got up in the morning and all of a sudden there was this weight lifted off of me. God hasn't changed my circumstance. Honestly, I don't even have the answer. All I know is that God gave me peace. It's the spirit that leads us to call out Abba Father, and it's the spirit that is shaping our desires. The shaping our desires, he will give you the desires of the heart. The shaping our desires to turn less specific about me getting a specific thing and, and more to, to the person and work of Jesus and more to whom God has given us in his son. And he becomes our delight and he becomes our deepest treasure. And then we become like the, the host of people in Hebrews chapter 11, who the Bible says, who all died without receiving the promise longing for the promise, but who died with satisfaction because they knew that there was a city, a better city to come. Or we become like Simeon and Anna and and Luke chapter 2, who spent their entire lives, entire lives in the temple, Longing for redemption, longing for Israel to return. And for their, most of their lives, they didn't see it. But by faith, they continue to serve the Lord. And even though they didn't get to see the full work of the Messiah, God gave them a taste of it, even, even here on earth. Philippians 4, 6-8, don't worry about anything, but in everything, don't worry about anything. What are you worried about? What is your longing today? don't worry about anything. Just before this, he tells the church to rejoice in everything. When we set our affections on this Messiah, on this child who promises to bring an eternity of peace, an eternity of justice, an eternity of joy, an eternity of righteousness, We may live for 90 years, 100 years at most, 114. The oldest person in the U.S. just died this past week at 114 years, 114 years. And it may be lived with genuine trauma and, and, and genuine pain. It will be trauma. It will be pain on this side of heaven. But we've got a billion years of life left, billions upon billions of years of life where Jesus is king, where Jesus is Lord, where righteousness reigns. Where justice reigns, where peace reigns, where prosperity reigns, where we live in this kingdom as kings and queens for all eternity, perfectly loved, filling the the ray of of the sun upon our face, not the S-U-N, but the S-O-N, because the, the light of Jesus will light up the city of the new Jerusalem. Paul tells the church, don't worry about anything. Yo, God's got you. But in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to the Lord. Just pray to the Lord. Talk to the Lord. Meditate on the Lord. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Do you see, Jesus, your wonderful counsel in the midst of your storms, in the midst of your real longings, your deep longings, true longings, saying, come to me. I'll give you rest. Come to me. I'll give you peace. Pray to me. Sit silently before me. Finally, brothers and sisters, this is what Paul says at the end of his life. He's writing to the church of Philippi while in prison, while in chains, facing death. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence and if there is anything praiseworthy, dwell on this. Advent is a season to dwell on what is true. Satan may appear to be winning, but the war has already been fought and won. Your flesh and your, your, your spirit may, may, may be going through times of toil and, and, and anxiety, but you can trust in the Lord and receive peace. The battle has already been won. I love and I'm so grateful for uh, the persecuted church all over the U S and I love hearing stories and reading stories about it. And part of the persecuted church that I don't think that we as Americans really get to think about a lot is the invisible institution or is the African American uh, church and the suffering that uh, many African Americans went through in the time of slavery. Um, There's just such a rich history and, and things to be learned from that span of history. Uh, during those times, um, there was a common phrase among slaves that would be spoken out in the field. And the phrase went, the grass grows high over yonder. That's what they would say to each other. Your grass is growing high over yonder. And this is what that meant. When slaves would be out in the field working, if someone became overly discouraged and just started talking a lot and, and, and bringing everyone else down, even though the reality of their situation uh, could and should have, have, have an impact on their spirit and soul, they, were, they would encourage each other and say, the, the grass grows high over yonder. Here's what it means. It was an invitation to that person to be quiet and to pray. To get on their knees in the grass and to pray to their father so that they can find hope and contentment and to remember his promises. And for some of us, the grass grows, grows high over yonder. Our longings are enslaving us. Because we are not taking them and being honest before the Lord. Read the Psalms. Just be honest. Tell him what you feel. Tell him what you desire. He's your, your heavenly father. And allow him to shape you. Delight in him. And allow him to become more beautiful to you. To remind you of who he is. What he's done. And what he's getting ready to do. Don't let the grass grow high over yonder. And every Sunday we remind ourselves that we serve a God who loved us so much that um, he came to us. Like that's what we're celebrating at Advent. That we don't serve a God who created everything and who sits back and just watching everything and who's just shaking his finger like, them humans, they just can't get it together. They are a mess. We serve a God who said, They are a mess, and I'm going to enter into their mess, die for them, defeat death, adopt those who believe in me by faith as my own, secure an eternity of peace, justice, and righteousness for them, and give them what they need now for life and godliness. And we take a meal every week to remind ourselves that Emmanuel, God, is with us. We break bread. We drink wine or juice. The bread represents the body of Jesus, the body. God has a body, the body of Jesus, which was broken for us. The wine represents the blood of Jesus, which was shed for us. As often as we eat this cup and, and, and uh, eat this bread and drink of this cup we proclaim the lord's death until he returns those you're in front you can come to the front to take communion those in the back you can go to the back to take c- communion gluten-free and alcohol-free communion is to my left let's pray hi i'm jamal williams lead pastor of soldier in midtown thanks for listening At Midtown, we value gospel-centeredness, biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships, diverse fellowship, creativity in the arts, and relentless mission. For more sermons, info about our church, visit SojournChurch.com slash Midtown.